Since our initial release of James Davis's story, there have been some incredible developments. This is a re-release of that story with new content outlining the great news. On January 24th, 2004, James J. Davis went to a big party at the Brooklyn Masonic Temple to celebrate his little brother Daniel's birthday. James's night was cut short when he drank too much and vomited several times. Daniel put him in a cab to meet with his girlfriend, Kaneen Johnson. Two hours later, a big fight broke out in the club, resulting in their friend Jamel Black being stabbed and another man, Blake Harper, being shot and killed. Police would interview people at the scene to get a description of the shooter, a light-skinned black man with braids. But James didn't have braids at the time. He had short hair with waves. Police then called stabbing victim Jamel Black's home and spoke to his sister, who happened to be James's spurned ex, Tina Black, who casually named James as the shooter, even though she had never even been at the party in the first place. Police found Jamel at the hospital, who told them the identity of the real shooter, Tay Hall. So was it Tay or Jay? Two weeks later, Jose Machicote, who was at the club that night, would enter the precinct and second Tina Black's identification. About six weeks after that, James found himself the target of an interrogation, a sham lineup, and a murder charge. Only after his case was picked up by the Legal Aid Society was it revealed that Jose Machicote was actually one of the most dangerous drug dealers in Brooklyn and the subject of a joint FBI-NYPD investigation. Machicote was murdered five months after his false testimony that sent James to prison for the rest of his life. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, 
iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me. I'm your host. And today you're going to hear a story that when they write the, the history of wrongful convictions, they could put this on the cover because this story is so outrageous that, well, you're just going to have to hear it for yourself. Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from Shay, an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. To refuse charges, press 2. If you would like, thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. On the phone from prison where he's been for almost 20 years, we have James J. Davis. Hello. Jay, thanks for calling in, and I hope that we'll be able to make a difference. And and with us today, we have Elizabeth Felber, who is the supervising attorney in the Wrongful Conviction Unit of the Legal Aid Society. Thank you for having us. Let's go back to the beginning. James, you had a rough childhood growing up in Brownsville in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, very. My mother and my father weren't really in my life. It was more my grandmother and my brother. My father died when I was in fourth grade. Roughly two years later, my mother passed away. The year before that, my brother father passed away, so both of us had no parents. By the time I reached sixth grade, I had to keep people from picking on him outside as well as keep people from picking on me and bullying me. So that's when the fight started happening. I started getting into a lot of trouble. I was doing a lot of stupid stuff. I was young. I was robbing people. I was selling weed. And that's when you ended up in juvie. So I understand you were accepted to Cape Fear Community College in North Carolina, near where your aunt lived. No small feat, considering your record, but your probation officer wouldn't transfer your supervision out of state. So you were trying to get yourself into some computer science classes locally. Around that time, I found out that my brother was into the streets, and that's pretty much where I got back involved in the streets, selling weed and being there for this case. Elizabeth. Take us back to January 24, 2004. What happened that fateful night? Okay, so January 24th was his brother Daniel's birthday. And Daniel wanted to go to a party that was being held at a Masonic Temple Lodge where they they hosted events. It was a party for people with January birthdays. We all grew up in the projects. Bo is an older guy from the neighborhood that he's like a a well-liked guy. He does parties. He knew my brother as well. My brother, he'd been talking about his birthday for a long time, so they put him on the flyer, I guess. On my brother's birthday, my plan was to, like, we just going to chill, maybe call up some girls to come hang out at the projects with us. He was bent on going to the party because his name was on the flyer, so it comes to be almost 12 o'clock, and I wanted to surprise my brother, so I walked to the liquor store before it closed to get a bottle of Moet and a bottle of Hennessy. And when I got back, my brother was like, oh, I forgot the party. 
So by the time he got to the party, he had had a few already. And then he proceeded to have a few more drinks in the bathroom because they told him, okay, you can have your own drink, but you have to put some shade on it. Before you know it, I was trying to rush my drinks so that we can actually get out the bathroom. I wanted to see what the party was really like. And the Hennessy and the, the Moet turned my stomach over. That was the start of the end of the night. I, I threw up maybe once or twice in the bathroom. And before I knew it, through the laughing, I hear my brother pretty much like, come on, man, now I got to take you back home. We just got here. We ain't even fully been in the club long enough. Through negotiation, I just told him, I, I just walk me outside. I catch a cab and I go to my girlfriend's house. So they went outside. They got a cab and James called his girlfriend, Kaneen Johnson, and took the cab to her place. And she met him outside. Her mother didn't like James, so they would stay with her aunt. I got there at 2.45, maybe 3. So when I got there, she's sitting on the steps already. I step out the cab. I think I threw up in between cars before I even touched the sidewalk. She came running down the steps, rubbed my back, I think, and walked to our house, stopped at the store, and went into our house. So he was long gone before anything happened at the party, which was around four in the morning. A fight broke out and somebody was seriously stabbed. We now know that was Jamel Black. And Blake Harper was shot and killed. A couple other people were shot, but not seriously. Um, James had already left the party hours earlier. So you wake up the next morning at your girlfriend Kaneen's, her aunt's house, really. And one of the guys you were with, Jamel Black, had been stabbed the night before. How did you hear that news? Her aunt woke both of us up. The news is on. It's about the Masonic Temple. Immediately, I call my house on the landline. And my aunt is like, yeah, Jamel got stabbed and somebody got killed. But nobody knew who the guy was that got killed. So I'm like, I'm coming over there. I got there. My brother pretty much told me I wasn't really involved in it, but it was crazy in there. The fight broke out, people shooting, girls screaming, and everybody running. Police had responded to the scene, and they interviewed a number of people at the club, and no one that they interviewed knew the identity of the shooter, but he was described as a young, light-skinned black male with braids on the back of his head. Now, James, is that an accurate description of you at that time? No. I actually didn't have braids at the time. I had a low Caesar, like waves. So police have already interviewed witnesses at the scene the night before. Your friend who was stabbed, Jamel Black, they call his house, but they get his sister on the phone instead. Tina Black, like the first girlfriend I ever had. What we learned was that Tina Black still harbored a flame for him and was hugely jealous when she found out that he had a new girlfriend. And out of spite, she told the police that James did the shooting, even though you can tell by the only police record on her, she wasn't at the party that night. She was very sick with juvenile diabetes, too sick to go to a party. The police should have known that she wasn't at the party. And yet they just focused on him. The second page of the detective notebook says, Perp, James Davis, J. So it's just tunnel vision from then on out. Right. So the people that were there couldn't identify the suspect. The woman who wasn't there does identify a suspect. And of course, we know that Tina later on confessed to her mother and to others that she had lied to the police. Now we're up to the part where the detectives went to the hospital, right? And they interviewed Jamel Black. 
So the detectives actually went to the hospital the day of the incident, and they were told he was just coming out of surgery. He was too out of it. The doctors wouldn't let him interview Jamel. Jamel testified at our hearing, and he told the court that what happened was those detectives came back later, and Jamel told them he had been stabbed by the guy who was subsequently killed. And this guy named Tay Hall was helping him out of the party when he says, oh, shit, pushes Jamel to the ground and you hear shots fired. Jamel looks up and he sees Tay putting a gun back in his pocket and saying, I got to get out of here. The police are coming. But there was no written report about that conversation and it never came out. At the hearing, the judge said, oh, it's just not credible that they wouldn't have a report about it. Well, it's also not credible that you wouldn't interview the person who was stabbed because they would most likely have the most relevant information. So let's fast forward then to a couple of months after the shooting, right? And that's when the Warren squad came. They were actually looking for your younger brother when they arrested you and you weren't even aware that they were looking for you because you knew that you didn't have anything to do with this and there was no reason to suspect you of anything other than being drunk and throwing up on the sidewalk. They took me from my house under the guise that I had a warrant, which I did. I did have a warrant for disorderly conduct and do community service, but they never took me to the court building. They took me down to like homicide headquarters where I met Detective Hutchinson for the first time before they took me to the precinct. At the precinct, they, they pretty much was asking me, do I know Jamel Black and do I know what happened to Jamel Black? So I explained to them the same thing that I just was telling you about getting drunk and leaving, who actually walked me to the door, whatever, where I went after I left the party. From there, I don't, I don't remember exactly the rest of the questions, but it was pretty much all about the shooting there. So I'm like, when, when am I going to court? I'm supposed to be going to court. Like, no, what we're going to do is we're going to put you in a lineup. I'm like, a lineup? I need a lawyer. He's like, do you have a lawyer? I'm like, no, I don't have a lawyer, but I have a lawyer in my family who, who can come and represent me. But he tells me if I don't have a number for him, then he can't call him. Then they just took me back to the room, left me in the room. And from there, it went to the lineup, and they came back with four guys. Three of them is dark-skinned. Two of them heavy set. Nobody looks like me. Nobody favors me in no way, shape, or form. But I'm like, this can't be. Then he bring two more guys in, like Indian-looking guys. But I'm like, nah, this is a this is a fix. Liz, can you tell us a little bit about it, this lineup and, and how things went so wrong? So the lineup in itself was already suggestive, but there were three people who um, viewed the lineup. Um, one of them was Jose Machicote. He was the first witness that they brought in to view a photo spread about six weeks earlier, and it was unclear why he was called. He was the brother-in-law of the man who died, but he was not one of the people that had been originally interviewed. It's pretty common knowledge that when you've picked someone out of a photograph, you pick them again in the lineup because you recognize them as the person. But the lineup happened six weeks later. At the lineup, the two other witnesses, Harold Poe and Sean Belton, they were brought there by the mother of the deceased. And according to their testimony, she called them and said, they have the guy they think did it at the precinct and they want you to just come to see if you can 
you know, identify him or something to that effect, that's already contaminating the lineup because there's a pressure put on them that this is the person, they have the person, they feel compelled to pick one person, especially especially when the mother of the deceased has chauffeur driven you to the precinct. So they picked James, but one of them said always from the beginning, well, he resembles him except for the braids because when James got arrested, his hair was short. And the other guy, Sean Belton, now originally he had said, I didn't see anything when the police spoke to him. Now he said, oh, I just said that because I was afraid. But the description he gave before he viewed him was of someone wearing a scully cap. And that's nowhere in any description and also 5'10". And James is like 5'7". So he didn't even describe someone that looked like James. So that's how they picked him. There was a fourth person at the lineup who did not testify at the trial or the hearings. And what Detective Hutchinson said about him was, oh, we picked him out. He just wouldn't sign the sheet saying he had. Again, you know, some things just your alarm goes off. That smells fishy. So um, we caught up with him. He did not want to be involved. He made that 150% clear. But what he told us was, no, I never said that was the guy. That's why I wouldn't sign. And what I said to them was, if you say that's the guy, that's the guy. So to me, that says they were being prompted to pick James. And I should just add that Sean Belton at the second trial recanted again and said, I just glanced at him. He gave four separate statements. So that was him. And the other guy always only said he resembled him. So essentially, it really came down to Jose Machicote. When you think about the convenience of Tina Black Jr. giving my name to the detective, and then a week later, Jose Machicote, the drug dealing, violent robber, who's a humble barber now, just happens to walk into the precinct. Though he didn't stay at the crime scene when everything happened, he fled the crime scene. He walks into the precinct and he picks my picture. He's the only one that goes to the precinct and it just so happens that he's known in this neighborhood. To me, the whole the whole case is weird from beginning to end. I think that this was a misunderstanding maybe from Speaking to Jamel Black and him telling them the story he told them about Tay, then them asking his sister about Tay, and she telling them Jay. And they just went from there with the easiest thing that they could do to close the case. And, and it just so happened to be that I was convenient for them. This episode is underwritten by Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, a leading international law firm. Paul Weiss has long had an unwavering commitment to providing impactful pro bono legal assistance to the most vulnerable members of our society and in support of the public interest, including extensive work in the criminal justice area. After the lineup, they told me I was being charged with murder, and he offered me a deal pretty much. Detective Hutchinson asked me to tell him that I did it because he already heard about the story of what happened. Somebody told him that two groups of guys was fighting, and the guy in one of the groups had a knife, and the guy in the other group had a gun. And he shot the guy with the knife to defend himself. But if you tell me that, then I can help you. I speak to the DA. I'm like, what the hell kind of shit is that? Why the fuck would I tell you I did something that I'm telling you I wasn't even aware of? I wasn't there for it. He's like, 
you know, if I was you, I would have did the same thing if it was me. A guy comes at me with a knife and I got a gun, I would have shot him too. You ain't do nothing wrong. I was like, but you want me to admit to something I didn't do? That's wrong right there. They fingerprinted me and put me in a, a holding cell for the rest of the night. Now things go from bad to worse, right? The trial, there's a number of problems at both trials. Although the first trial, amazingly, in spite of the fact that you had substandard defense, you still ended up with an 11 to 1 hung jury in favor of acquittal. You have this this one guy, Jose Machicote, who's blaming the cause of this fight on his brother-in-law while the two prosecutors, witnesses beside him are saying that he started the whole fight. And he's saying that I had nothing to do with it. I'm a humble barber. I, I never committed a crime again after I was locked up all of those years ago. You have a conflict between your own witnesses. Kaneen Johnson, his girlfriend, did testify at the first trial. She's explaining to them how I came to her aunt's place while we didn't stay at her mother's house. Her mother was like a, a CO or ex-CO at the time. I guess she didn't think I was good enough for her daughter. I think that, in part, was part of what um, led to the 11 to 1 acquittal, that she was a very persuasive witness. But at the second trial, the DA is saying that I threatened one of the witnesses. Sean Belton recants, but it's I can't really consider that recanting because he went back to the initial statement that he never seen anything. Havel told, we had his testimony read into the record because throughout the whole thing, he never identified me. He only referred to me as looking similar to one of the guys. The other person that they say picked me out of a photo array, never signed on none of the pictures, but the detective is saying, I made a mark next to the picture that he picked out because he wouldn't sign it. It's like, that don't even make sense. The only only witness that they had was Jose Machicote that actually positively picked me out of a lineup. And all you needed was your star witness, Kaneen Johnson, to show up and counter Machicote just like she did at the first trial. But at the second trial, I'm not with my girlfriend anymore. So our contact is kind of really touch and go where she know that I'm only calling to notify her of court dates and what's going on with my life, which she's trying to avoid, I guess. I don't know. My lawyer said he spoke to her and she was supposed to be coming in, and then she didn't show up, but she was still being nice to him on the phone. He called her again, and then she cursed him out. She told him that he sent police to her house at like one in the morning, but we learned that day in the courtroom that it wasn't actually my lawyer that sent the police, that it was the district attorney who subpoenaed her. Even though in court she said, I never plan on calling this girl as a witness because I don't know what she's going to say. Even though she heard what my witness said at the first trial, but they still subpoenaed her and sent police to her house at like one in the morning, which actually infuriated her mother and caused her mother to kick her out. That right there pretty much sealed the deal as far as her coming to court. And it found me guilty. Anyone who's listening is probably wondering right now, well, if if I was representing him back then, I, I would have checked the cell phone records. Or I would have checked the cab records. We could have gotten a hold of the cab company and see if anybody, because you took a cab, right? 
And none of that stuff was done, right? The weird thing is, out of all of the easy stuff that we think of that could have been done, my attorney at the time hired a chiropractor or child doctor to do medical examiner work. And I've never even seen the medical examiner work or any paperwork that he had done. But he didn't go and check a cab. He didn't go and speak to none of these witnesses that's in the DD files from the police reports. But you found a, a, a doctor to play as a medical examiner from your office building. It's sad to say, but if you don't have money to actually pay for a lawyer, then the justice system doesn't really work for you. It's rare that it does. So meanwhile, the story goes on. Mr. Machicote was murdered by a drug dealer five months after James's second trial. Yes. Um, after he was trying to rob the drug dealer for, for the second time in a month. Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah, he was tortured and killed. And I mean, this is some Quentin Tarantino stuff now, but this is the guy that the <laughs> authorities were painting to be a wonderful citizen who was yes. bravely coming forward. And now he's a simple barber and blah, blah, blah. So that's all out the window. So we learned this as the hearing was going on, the actual innocence hearing that we litigated last summer and we're appealing now. During our hearing, I reached out to the assistant U.S. attorney because people were prosecuted federally for killing Machicote. And through it, I met the FBI agent who told me that at the time of the trial, Jose Machicote was under their investigation. It was a joint NYPD FBI investigation into drug dealing, major drug dealing in Brownsville. And lo and behold, in the spring, which was when the second trial was happening, a confidential informant was buying huge quantities of heroin and cocaine from Machicote. Now, we don't know if the assistant district attorney knew that, but it's hard to believe that the detective who used to be a narcotics detective in Brownsville did not know that this man was a one of the major most violent drug dealers in Brooklyn and be under you know investigation by the FBI. So that was never disclosed. No, that would have been an inconvenient fact to bring up as they were trying to present him as the perfect witness, right? And what was in it for Machicote? You know, I don't want to go down too deep a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, but that he was on parole the night of this murder. He had violated parole by being out past his curfew. And the fight that Jay was referring to, a lot of the police reports say a Spanish guy wearing a fur coat grabbed a bottle within a fight on the floor. That was Machicote. So that was also a violation of parole. So I don't know whether they threatened him with having him locked up, whether there was something corrupt going on. You know, it was the 75th precinct, which is notorious. And all we do know is that when the prosecutor got up in summation and said, he's such a credible witness and you know he's credible because he was so honest about his past and now he's a barber. Well, he might have been honest about his past, but he wasn't really honest about his present. So... You know, in addition to the problems with, you know, ID evidence in a situation like that, you also have this unsavory character pretending to be someone that he's not. It's almost like an exclamation point on the whole thing. You know, he ends up in like a scene from Reservoir Dogs being tortured to death by a guy who he was trying to rob for a second time, a drug dealer. I mean, nice witness. Right. And the first time he, he entered at gunpoint and tied them up and robbed them. So it wasn't his first rodeo. No, and it sounds like they turned the tables on him and, and then he took this false testimony he presented to the grave with him. Yes. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. 
I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. 
Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I didn't know the justice system actually takes this long, but I thought maybe, you know, uh, two years I'll be back home. They'll fix this whole thing and I'll be home. Two years turned into 17 and I'm still fighting and trying to convince them that they actually locked up the wrong person. And then to compound this tragedy again, the little brother that you felt so responsible for was murdered in 2012. I mean, I can't possibly begin to imagine your pain, but your grandmother's still here. My brother and my grandmother is like my oldest friend in the world. My grandmother been there for as long as I knew. I know she know my pain, and my brother was there with me through everything. So it's like I lost out on what little I was able to spend of his life with him in 17 years of my grandmother's life. She was 63. I just missed all of these birthdays and times to spend with her. I think that was my first Christmas ever actually really buying my grandmother my own gift. And she was so happy for that. I've been here for every year since. That's something I didn't even do. I pray for her every night. I, I need her to be strong for me because that's one of the reasons that I live for her. Like my grandmother. My mother was murdered two weeks or so, yeah, a week and some change after Mother's Day, which was hard for my grandmother. And then my brother on Father's Day, right before her birthday. So it's like, I've I've had a real real rough journey. Her journey is just as rough, so this is why that's like my closest friend right there outside of my brother that passed away. Yeah, I can't imagine. We need to do everything we can to bring you home, James. Yes. So now, you know, we get to the post-conviction investigation, and of course you had a meeting with the Conviction Review Unit in Brooklyn. That was actually before I became involved in the case. Susan Epstein, who did the appeal and did a phenomenal investigation, brought the witnesses to the Conviction Review Unit. They had the case incredibly for five years. It's not exactly clear what happened, but one refrain that is throughout the transcripts of those interviews is, why didn't you come forward sooner? And there's lots of them, right? It's not like this is one person. These are people who are, you know, members of the community who who are not kids anymore either. I don't know why they dragged their feet. And they never came right out and said, we don't believe you. We think he's guilty. Even after we brought the motion and started the hearing, they said to the press, you know, we're still looking into it or something to that effect. But for some reason, they just were unpersuaded. And that brings us to the hearing we've been referring to this entire time. You and Susan filed a 440 motion, which is New York legalese for a motion to set aside the judgment. That was in September of 2018. And you argued for James's actual innocence, as well as ineffective assistance of counsel and newly discovered evidence at this hearing back in June of 2019. Yes, we were pretty optimistic going into it. So we had eight witnesses, including James. Uh, James went first. So he told the story that you heard, you know, about leaving because he was intoxicated. And then Jamel Black came in and he had initially refused to cooperate and sent a letter to Susan saying, he ruined my life because he had, um, James had 
slept with his girlfriend when he was locked up at Rikers and he held a grudge. But he came in and he told the whole story. First of all, he helped walk James out to the car, but then they started to get into a fight about this girlfriend again. And he went inside and he met up with Tay, the shooter. So he told the whole story about how the stabbing happened and how the shooting happened and how it was Tay. And then how he told this to the police. We also had the woman who cut his hair and that the last time she saw him, his hair was short. And you had Corey Hines, who was at the party in the bathroom laughing at him as he was throwing up. His brother had signed an affidavit saying, I put him in a cab and sent him to his girlfriend's house. Um, Sadly, he was murdered in 2012. So we didn't have him as a witness. We had his affidavit and we believe the judge should have allowed that into evidence and he didn't. And we had Kaneen Johnson, the girlfriend who didn't show up at the second trial. We actually had to do what's called a material witness order to have her arrested to bring her in, which I really didn't want to do. So when that happens, they assign an attorney to you. And the attorney came in and said to the judge, she's willing to testify, but she's terrified of the family. And what came out on the witness stand is that after she testified at the first trial, friends and family of the deceased followed her, not just out of the courtroom, but out of the courthouse, calling her names, threatening her. If we're going to find out where you live, if we see you on the street. And it was so bad that James's attorney put her in a cab because he was afraid of her having to take public transportation home. So here she is. She hasn't seen James since the first trial. And she essentially says exactly what she testified to years before, that she got out of the car, threw up, and she got him a ginger ale at a bodega, and they walked to his hand. So she told that entire story. The two new witnesses that I found also particularly compelling, one was B.O. His real name is Ernest. Ernest was one of the promoters. And we asked him, well, how is it that you remember that he was there? And he said, so I remember when he came in and I was joking about whose waves were better. So unprompted, he basically said he had short hair at the time. And he also said somebody had thrown up by the bar and he asked the bouncer what happened here. And he said, oh, you know, those two brothers, one of them was drunk and I told him they had to leave. So that was information we didn't even know about. I think it's also worthwhile to mention Tina Black, the young woman who named James in the first place is sadly no longer with us. In 2013, she died of complications related to the very diabetes that had kept her from the party that fateful night all the way back in 2004. And then lastly, and maybe the most emotionally compelling witness was Tina Black Sr., the mother. So she came in, you know, with the cane. She's like crippled by arthritis. She basically was racked with guilt that her daughter eventually confessed to her that she had set James up and that he was never coming home and that she was still in love with him. So that was extremely compelling testimony. So that was essentially our case. Then January 24, 2020, 16 years to the day after Blake Harper was tragically murdered, the judge denied James Davis's wrongful conviction motion in its entirety. I remember reading that the first time right. and going, oh, God. Right. What is- we were stunned. And then we asked the judge to reopen the hearing so that we could call this FBI agent so that we could show that they would have known about this evidence that Machicote was not just a humble barber, but he was a major drug dealer in Brooklyn. And the judge refused to reopen the hearing. And now there's really literally one stop left on this. You don't get to appeal a 440 as a matter of right. You have to ask permission. 
it's called seeking leave to appeal. And we did get permission to appeal. So we are in the process of writing a brief. And this is the last stop. We are going to the second department appellate division and asking them first and foremost to find him innocent and dismiss these charges. So it turns out that the last stop in the second department appellate division, Jay and Elizabeth's Hail Mary pass was a great success. And I have with me right now, James J. Davis. Jay, welcome back to wrongful conviction. Finally breathing free. Hey man. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me back. It feels good to actually be doing this from my own cell phone instead of a jail phone. Yeah. I mean, it, Obviously, this should have never happened, and it would have been better if you never had to go through this in the first place. But now, from what I understand, Elizabeth was able to finally prove that your trial counsel was ineffective because he failed to present any of the laundry list of alibi witnesses that would have easily and certainly cast reasonable doubt and proven your innocence at the original trial. Do you have, like, if you could say anything to them, because they're probably listening, let's face it. Do you have a message for Elizabeth and all her great people at the Legal Aid Society? I got to thank Susan and Elizabeth and the rest of the Legal Aid Society for the help that they gave me. Because without them, I wouldn't be here right now. So that's the great news. But the truth is we're not completely out of the woods yet. Because after all, the Brooklyn DA has the choice to either appeal the decision, retry you, or dismiss the charges. And we're all hoping, and so many of us are praying, that they choose the latter. Because as we've outlined here, out of the three who originally identified you, there's Sean Belton, who recanted, and Harold Poe, who didn't testify at the second trial and always only said James resembled the shooter. So that leaves the dead drug dealer who lied to the jury about his true identity, a lie the prosecutor capitalized on in her summation. The likely incentivized witness, Jose Machicote, is the only person left identifying you. Meanwhile, the person who was stabbed and saw Tay Hall kill Blake Harper, of course, I'm referring to Jamel Black, a guy who, despite his own personal grudge against you, testified to your innocence and to Tay Hall's guilt. So if the Brooklyn DA's office chooses to continue to charge you, it's definitely not in the interest of justice. Please don't let us down here. And, and that said, Jay, what have you been up to since your release in May 2021? I've been trying to spend time with my family, mainly my grandmother. Me and her have been talking one-on-one about creating new memories because, as I told you before, my mother was murdered at the Mother's Day and my brother was murdered right at the Father's Day. So we've been putting positive energy into the universe to create new memories for them two occasions. And me coming home started it off. So we're trying to continue. Try to do something nice for her birthday, create some better memories, cover up the old ones. Just have some happy moments, man. Enjoy the rest of our time together. And is there any way that our wonderful audience can show you their support? There's a GoFundMe page that, that my family is running for me right now. They're trying to get me um, readjusted back to society. Anything that the audience can do to help would be great, man. I'm just happy to be here and have this opportunity. We will absolutely definitely have that linked in our bio so our listeners can help. And I can honestly say, and everyone who knows me knows this, nothing makes me happier than news like yours. So thank you again for talking with us. 
And with that, I'd like to give your closing argument an update. And what I mean now, again, is I'm just going to kick back in my chair, turn off my microphone, and just listen to whatever you have to say. Jason, man, I just want to say thank you, man. I want to thank you again. Thank Susan Epstein, Elizabeth Felber, and the Legal Aid Society for all of the help that they've given me, man. I want to thank God, man, because without him, I wouldn't be here. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Please support your local Innocence Projects and go to the link in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music on the show, as always, is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts